Welcome to the IoT 613 podcast, covering all aspects of the Internet of Things from Ottawa, Canada, and beyond. My name is Robert Decker, Marketing Director at IoT 613. Today on the show, we have Alex Benet, Chief Information Officer for the Government of Canada, Deputy Minister, Treasury Board of Canada Secretariat. As CIO of Canada, Alex is working towards building the digital government, which is no small feat. We discuss GC digital policy, the need for government to merge services, technology, data, and cyber into one strategic tool, how APIs and digital exchange platforms are a necessity, how talent and recruitment processes can evolve to reflect the gig economy, how procurement processes can be revamped to include more collaboration between buyers and sellers, as well how ethical AI and machine learning can be implemented across government services. Lots to talk about, so let's dig in. Hi, Alex. Thanks for joining me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So you enjoyed an interesting and progressive career. Can you tell me a bit about where you're from, what did you study, and maybe how do you define what you do now? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I actually started off in government, uh, mostly in foreign affairs, uh, and um, I was lucky enough to kind of go through the ranks fairly quickly and always have really good supportive bosses. Spent five years in the private sector, ended up being a vice president there and running some of the global government work. Uh, ran a Crown Corp, uh, which may to this day be the coolest job I'll ever have because you get to talk to astronauts and scientists. Yeah, the Science and Tech Museums in Ottawa. So I, that's actually the job that my kids would think was the coolest by far because now they're like, I don't understand what you do. You used to speak to like William Shatner and like all the cool people. and Now, now you got to talk to me. Now whatever. So, so, anyway, so that'll probably always be the coolest gig forever. But uh, now I'm CIO for government. So, I mean, if you want to know what I studied in, I started in history. I'm not, I, I taught myself to code back in the day. I'm not uh, someone that has... Uh, uh, I would say deep, deep technical knowledge. I've always been on the application and the business side of technology, whether that is policy or service or um, well, on, the, on, on the private sector side, on the, on the development and on the relationship side. So it's been, it's been fun. I used to get called eclectic as a background and take it personally. Now I think it's actually absolutely mandatory in today's day and age. So to have an eclectic background to be able to do anything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's currently CIO of Canada and not a technical job this is about really complicated societal issues around ethical ai or data governance or how do we do service delivery in the age of privacy so i mean it's the funnest time to be doing this work because of everything going on not always easy but definitely the funnest time it's an amazing uh, opportunity that you're in right now we'll dig into some of that i just want to go a little bit into your past uh, you mentioned some of them you spent some time with open text as a vp uh, what is Open Text, and what did you learn from this experience? Yeah, it's funny because I met their chairman uh, Tom Jenkins uh, as I was contemplating leaving government. He said, "Why don't you come and work for us?" And um, Open Text is Canada's largest software company. Uh, a little known secret: in most Canadian companies, we tend to not celebrate corporate Canada as much in Canada as we do in the U.S., for example, or other cultures around the world. So. Most Canadians don't know OpenText, largest, uh, I think they were the eighth largest pure software company in the world now, actually. Um, what did I learn from that experience? I learned that uh, as you change sectors, people will always try to lobotomize you and tell you that everything you learned in the previous sector doesn't apply <laughs> here. True. And that goes for joining OpenText. When I joined a Crown Corp, I was told this is neither the public sector nor the private sector. This is Crown. You must learn different. And then when I came back to government, I was told how... 
you know, government is different and here's how you do procurement, even though I had been selling to the government for five years. Um, so, so I knew full well the pain of selling into government as well. So, so that's what I kind of learned, not just through open text, but every time there was a change was as I, as I continued to change sectors, I started protecting my transferable knowledge and skills and approaches more. And how do you do that? I think it comes with maturity. You, when you're younger, you want to impress, you listen to everybody. And then as I grew older, it was more a question of taking the pieces that fit with me. There are things I will never be. I am super not interested in fiscal economic policy, five to 10 year lens, not my bag. <laughs> uh, my boss's bag, Peter, he's amazing at this stuff. And when he speaks, I completely listen. Yeah. But what I do like to do is do real stuff that like impacts somebody the next day. Yeah. Um, Take action. So you, but I didn't know that at first. So I guess it just comes with changing enough and uh, failing enough and, and kind of then ending up just kind of taking, I've been lucky, I've been super fortunate. I've got a, an amazing leadership framework now that supports me. Uh, my, my former boss, Yaprak, who's now retired, was amazing. My chairman of OpenText was always amazing to me. I've always been lucky uh, in that sense and I've always kind of followed leaders more. But yeah, what I did learn from that OpenText or the whole experience is kind of take all of these things and kind of make it your own. Yeah. You have to make it your own. Another big career you had, you mentioned in our introduction that you led some major changes with the Canadian Science and Tech Museum. Can you speak a bit about that experience, lessons learned, and what would you do differently, if anything, today? I wouldn't change a thing. Um, that period of time was uh, an incredible sort of uh, stress to the staff when uh, one of the three National Science Museums closed. We were able to get some money. Uh, from the federal government at the time to reopen and we reopened a national institution tore it down and reopened it in just over two years Which had never been done in the country yeah. before but in the middle of that infrastructure project and getting more money by the way for a storage facility Who's about to open soon? They we made the decision to change the business model Which is to release all the data to work with gaming companies documentary production companies and actually become more of a platform for partners to build off of as opposed to us delivering everything, mm -hmm. which meant that we could do more for less, that we could uh, actually diversify the staff's, call it experiences. So now all of a sudden a curator could work with historians from across the country because all their reports were being published as they were writing it. So I think there's a <laughs> two hour delay. So everything we were kind of, for the most part, working outside the firewall, which arguably you could say a lot of government institutions should be thinking of doing, like NASA is doing that in a big way with its science and, and other things. So what we think is just raw data that has no use. Well, who were we to think that, you know, Ancestry.com today would be a DNA company yeah. when they started off asking archival institutions to release their records to them. So. So, I mean, that was what, one of the big things I was the proudest of, I think, for that group and for us was that they changed the business model in the middle of an infrastructure crisis. We could have just reopened the museum and done the analog normal stuff. Instead, they just completely went digital on everything and their attendance soared yeah. as a result of it. So there was a lot of debate from people that aren't really used to technology and that think that it's one or the other as opposed to seeing them as complementary, sort of the real artifact, the real object with a digital experience that can go way further than the real object can because it's presumptuous in this day and age to make people come to us. We should be going to them. How does a kid in Callaway interact with the last spike? Well, you 3D print it. Right? Yeah. So you do the data modeling accordingly and you send it off to the library in Callaway with a 3D printer and, and, and you get some form of engagement. So that's the kind of stuff that was really cool. We were forced to reinvent ourselves. So the question that I learned from that on every job I'm ever going to have moving forward is, what if you could re restart the relationship? 
restart the bottle because you can. You don't need a crisis. It's easier when you're in crisis mode. Um, but like, why couldn't we reinvent the service relationship with citizens, for example, today? How does a large organization like a museum open their data from the initial discussions to the implementation plan? I mean, there's obviously a lot Just of do it. pushback not to not want to do it. Just do it. So we're, we are in Canada professional excuse makers, and I love my country, and I say that with the utmost respect, but every time I talk to my colleagues in other countries who either have neighbors that want to invade them or economic reasons for doing things very differently and very rapidly, the first thing they say is that we are too comfortable in Canada. So there is the drive and the need for innovation, which I partially understand what they're saying. And humble, yeah. And, and, but I also, obviously, I'm, I'm a fairly competitive person, for those of you that know me, but like I fundamentally disagree with their assessment as well. And I invite them to play hockey or other things that they would like to play with us. <laughs> we are somewhat a competitive country as well. So it's not that we're super comfortable, but there is some truth to it. Um, so, so, and, and the reason I, I bring that up is that um, at the museum, we had a whole bunch of excuses why we couldn't do it as well. We just did it. Yeah. We just did it. Um, you know, so, and we were going to manage the risk as we went along and we started it small. We released it unit by unit, division by division, work group by work group. Some stuff we knew we weren't releasing, private information of an artifact that we're collecting that has Jane Doe's birthday and locate. Well, obviously we're not releasing yeah. that um, unless we follow privacy regulations, right? So, so it became sort of an incremental approach and within six months it was done. It cost us under $25,000. Mm -hmm. We built a widget and all of our documents that we were creating went live on the internet. Awesome. Um, so it, it is about doing the thing, but it's about doing it in small steps, which is not something historically government has done. Uh, because we have created a risk environment that is unsustainable because we try to manage risk by eliminating it as opposed to managing it. That's a good point. You've, I, I see you as uh, disrupting the status quo in all of your careers and perhaps throughout your life, but I also see you have a very strong personal brand. You talk about that you're competitive and you have a very public image these days, um, perhaps for a long time. Uh, so you've been building a strong personal brand. What is your advice for people uh, in developing a personal brand. Yeah, this is a very interesting time to be a public servant because I, I do fundamentally believe that to, in order to have a professional modern public service, the day of the silent behind the scene public servant is increasingly disappearing. And it's not by choice, it's just the entire world has gone social in a lot of ways. Yeah. So if I was in a different job, national defense, I don't know, let's say, or or you pick a, you pick a, a portfolio, Maybe the public presence wouldn't be as required. But in this current job right now, I was asked to kind of change the culture. You can't change the culture with 25,000 people working in this space in the federal government from behind a desk. Yeah. You have to talk about what you're doing openly. You, you have to be able to expose yourself. It is not easier doing this. It is harder because you, know, you get some comments that are not always either in line with your, <laughs> your values or your morals or... Sometimes someone says something and you just want to say, okay, what, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, where is this coming from? Um, but so it's not about building the brand as much as it is about talking about the work. And so uh, one of the conditions I had, and conditions is a strong word, but the conversations I had with the people that brought me in at the time, so Minister Bryson and the Secretary uh, Yaprak, was like, we need to do this work in the open. We need to be transparent on what we're working on because that's how you get new partners to come to the table. That's how you get the public service to know what's going on even across its departments. It's a big shop. It's the largest shop in the country. So working in the open was important. And if it turns into brand, then you manage it. 
Um, our job is not to have a brand. I still fully believe in that, but and I do believe that our job though is to work in the open. Yeah. So for me, those are different things. Um, it, it's not it's not necessarily going out to try to build a brand. It's just if you happen to be able to build something like that, then you you have a responsibility to talk about the work of others, and that's what I try to do a lot. I talk about some of the obstacles faced by your talent cloud team, for example, or the fact that CRA uh, uh, is moving into chat, uh, piloted chatbots for service delivery, which is a big deal, or robot process automation projects at Transport Canada, or the fact that SSC is moving to the cloud. To be very frank, the media will never tell a good story. So it is on us to talk about what we're doing in the open because yeah. we are not incompetent. We you have are, a direct voice now. We have we have a platform that we could speak about the good things and negate the media aspects of it, which I, I'm apologizing to my friends who work in the media, but a, a negative story sells better than a positive one in, in the IT space and public sector. So so we have to tell our own story, frankly, because nobody else will. Yeah, well, they can't do the justice as, as you would do it yourself as well. Uh, also recognizing that we might be biased when we speak because we obviously think our projects are amazing <laughs> and that the media has a role to play in challenging us. And I think that's perfectly fine. That's why working in tech and public sector is harder than in the private sector because it is very public. So everybody's got a role to play, but ours in this day and age is probably to get out there and talk about what we're doing more. Well, congratulations on your continued success. I think it's amazing to be following along and I can really see the momentum that's building in front of you, beside you and behind you. It's amazing. So let's talk a bit more about government. You alluded to uh, some departments there and what they're up to. Can you give me a quick sort of state of the union for the Canadian government as it relates to technology adoption or processes or what needs to be done? That's probably a very large question. but Yeah, we've tried to focus a lot of our strategy around some core pieces. So, for example, bringing the user back into the discussion in everything we do. It is very easy to lose empathy. Uh, towards our citizens when it takes us on average five to ten years to do a project and everybody has changed jobs twice over We're not realizing that whatever we do in that project has a direct impact on citizens so actually bringing Users at the center of everything we do from experimentation to policy development is a big big part of what we're doing Working in the open is another big part of what we're doing. So whether that is releasing more data uh, launching our API store our open source API store um, doing more around a responsible and transparent and uh, uh, traceable artificial intelligence adoption. Um, so sort of working in that open, in the open space is very important. And we've been working hard to, frankly, modernize some of our infrastructure, which underpins all of these services, all of this sort of open movement, all this AI, all this data, um, because, you know, frankly, we, we needed to continue investing in that infrastructure. So working with our partners at Shared Service Canada on moving to cloud, uh, we've adopted a cloud first policy. So we're moving to try to piece by piece sort of make this government as a service, if you will, or government as a platform, because frankly, things like science departments, you could argue it would be a really interesting policy discussion to see why they can't work fully in the open if you're a science department. Mm -hmm. Because you, you know, it's science that's being delivered and produced by taxpayer dollars in a lot of cases. So why not do that completely in the open outside the firewall and see what kind of ecosystem of innovation we could create then. So, so we've been sort of putting the technical pieces in place to enable some of those discussions. We still have a lot of roadblocks. Yeah. Our, some of our legislation doesn't permit us to share data across departments. Uh, for example, we know that's a problem. If we want to move to a seamless service environment where you can get any service on any platform, on any device, with any partner, we need to be able to share better. We need to be able to manage privacy better. We also know that's a, an issue we have to look at. So there's still a lot of challenges, but we feel we've been putting some of the technical pieces in place and we've got 
some pretty big discussions to have around our rules framework. We have some discussions to have around continuing to increase the speed at which we update policy. Um, and again, I, I need to remind people like this isn't easy. It's the largest IT operation in the country. Uh, and I think the question is around working in the open, the more we do that, the more people can chip in on where we're trying to go. We've avoided doing a massive, here's a national government digital strategy because it'll take us a year to do. And by the time we're done that, things have changed five times over anyway. So we've sort of given a principles-based approach to some of the things we wanted to see. Our digital standards are out, helping departments design better digital services now. And we're, we're monitoring that through investments. Is that the digital policy? Uh, so a couple of different pieces. The digital standards is basically 10 rules or directions that we're asking departments to follow. Uh, ranging from designing with users, uh, doing cloud first, making sure there's APIs in place. So here's how you build your service in a modern digital era. Mm -hmm. The digital policy work that we're conducting now um, is a two-step process. The first step we was to basically upgrade our IT policies, which we had not done in about 14 years up until last yeah. year. Uh, so we've kind of dusted off the old IT policy. Now we're really hitting the tough questions. How do you integrate the service agenda in the department with a tech agenda, which historically has been separate? Yeah. How do you integrate it with the data piece, with the analytics piece and the AI stuff coming along? How do you build a digital office in each of these departments? Um, you know, it, this is sort of the meaty part of the conversation. Doing a cloud first policy was easy. We were the last 5i country not to have one. <laughs> right, so I mean, there's some things that are so you can leverage lessons from other countries. Hundred percent. So yeah. in this case, we're able to leverage in some cases leapfrog. Um, uh, so, so now the digital policies, we're in the meaty discussions around how we want to organize ourselves as government moving forward in the broader digital agenda, which has to include service and has to include technology. Is there a target date to release the digital policy? Uh, we were hoping for spring summer. Uh, you know, we're gonna, you know, we have a very uh, tight sort of schedule coming forward in the next three to four months. We'll yeah. try to see if we can't make it happen. If it doesn't happen in this mandate, we're hoping it happens in the next. Only because we need to organize ourselves this way anyways. Like the world is moving this way. This yeah. isn't a contentious piece of administrative policy. This is how do we organize ourselves better to serve Canadians better is a discussion we're going to continue to have over the next five, five, ten years. Hopefully it never ends, frankly. We, this isn't something that we're going to be able to claim victory on, I think. <laughs> well, you want to do it right and not fast as well, but at the same time balance it all. I want to drill into a couple of different technology things. Uh, we talked about AI and machine learning and uh, I guess just a few weeks ago, March 4th, we had AI Day. Uh, you guys were heavily involved in that. Can you tell me a bit about what you did on AI Day? And sure. Um, we, we have been fortunate that the, the government has invested billions, really, indirectly or indirectly, in some form of artificial intelligence and data in this country. Mm -hmm. um, so whether it's super clusters or AI centers of excellence in three different cities, what we were trying to, what we've been trying to do is typically government will make that kind of investment in innovation space and the government of Canada operations tends not to ingest any of that innovation for 5, 10, 15 years. In the case of AI, we realized that we couldn't wait that long, so we went right away with an RFP on the street uh, to pre-qualify vendors Standing offers, yeah. uh, to get the services and the technology in the government space. So now there's no more procurement excuse, we've done that. So there's now 74 qualified vendors ranging from small, medium, and large. 60% of those are Canadian, by the way, and many of those can be directly tied to investments from the government of Canada a few years ago. So it's a nice tightening of the loop between investment to operationalization of an investment if you're the government of Canada. I'm not sure it's been done that fast before in the tech space. So now all these vendors are there, that's fantastic. The Canada School of Public Service also starting to unveil some of its data, some of its AI courses that will be made available to public servants. 
So we have a full curriculum on sort of the, the automation space, if you will, writ large, uh, and the AI space and the data space. So that's great. So that was the second part. So tools, people. And the third part was the issuing of a directive that we're fairly proud of from uh, Treasury Board Secretariat's perspective. It's the first of its kind in the world. Um, where within that directive, we have uh, we are mandating departments to use a tool called the Algorithmic Impact Assessment Tool, which is a series of 50 or so questions that'll help a department, a deputy minister, a minister understand the level of risk of the automation that they're facing. So, for example, if you're the National Capital Commission and you run a website on the skating rink and you use a chatbot and the canal happens to be closed when you said it was open, yeah, not a major risk. If you're automating border decisions, major risk. So one of them would have a peer review group, for example, and the other one would not. Yeah. One of them would have mandatory minister briefing and the other one would not. One of them would have a data, uh, a series of data questions on bias around our data, the other one would not. So, so it helps us to actually set the risk management approach as opposed mm-hmm. to not doing it. We're going to do it, but we have to do it in a managed way. Other countries have already started using the AIA, uh, so Mexico and others, and now we're hoping that provinces use it as well because this is a tool that has to iterate often and we want to create a common body of knowledge around some of this stuff. So we've been pretty proud on the work on AI. I'm not sure other, any other government in the world is better equipped than us right now to face the automation uh, that is coming our way. So It's amazing. And you're equipping all departments and agencies to, uh, to move that forward as well. You have the Open Government Partnership Summit coming up at the end of May. Uh, how can people get involved in, in this one? Uh, yeah, so uh, sign up. Start by, by going to the OGP website and signing up to the event. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, nominations for, uh, or the proposals, uh, the call for nominations for speaking opportunities was closed a few months ago, I believe, or last month. Uh, and we had over 800 submissions, so it's bound to be an amazing week. Yeah. Uh, basically, the world is coming to Canada, uh, more specifically to Ottawa, to because uh, Canada has been one of the international co-chairs of the Open Government Forum this, uh, this past year. Uh, and we're looking forward to hosting the world. So some of the things we'll be doing slightly differently than other summits in the past is we do want to bring uh, AI in a very big way into this forum. We believe uh, AI transparency is as important as data and information transparency for the public service. Mm -hmm. So we want to start adding that into the narrative this year as a key takeaway, so we look forward to doing that. Another topic I hear often from you is uh, recruitment and talent and the gig economy. Can you speak a bit about you know arming the government with the right talent? Yeah, so this is a story about someone called Lauren Hunter, which I encourage you to follow online because she does work in the open extremely well. Lauren, for the last two, three years, has been called you know crazy by many, many, many senior leaders and many tech enthusiasts in government and many private sector people as well. But it, it's important to note that Usually innovation will come from the people that are brave enough to think differently. Uh, whether you're in the public or private sector, the systems aren't generated for you to think. Or not, you know, they're there for stability most of the time. Yeah. And, and so Lauren was fighting that, and I think fighting is a good word, because she had an, a vision and a dream that we could actually take contractors, because Ottawa spent tens of billions of dollars in the last decades in temporary staffing agencies and contractors, mm-hmm. to how do you actually bring them into the federal government family where they could have benefits, where they could have pensions, but also give them the freedom to come in and out as they please in light of the gig economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where the Dream of Talent Cloud came up. So Lauren now has launched this year the, the beta version of Talent Cloud. We are able to hire in about 45 days uh, temporary positions, so they're ranging from casual employment to term employment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the goal is to try to get it to 30, but someone who doesn't want a 35-year career in the government 
who is a developer, for example, could do a 12-month assignment with Talent Cloud, leave for 12 months, come back for 18, leave for six, come back for 12, yeah. and actually spend half of their career in the public sector just doing sort of contract. Intermittent. And, and I use the word contract lightly, but like temporary work with the government of Canada and gain all the benefits that come with being a public servant and yet enable you to leave. So it actually enriches our public service in a massive way because it's not porous or transparent enough right now. You know, we try to hire people and uh, from the outside and the way we're, and by the way, like the way we design this, us, the government, is that we expect you to know everything about government if we hire you from the outside when you're coming in and we completely miss the boat on transferable skills or knowledge or other things. Uh, Why not hire more procurement people that come from the outside that are used to doing selling to the government, for example? I can tell you that my five years selling to the government was the most enlightening procurement experience of my life. I do it every day. So Exactly. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Talent Cloud is called, right? Yeah, absolutely, and Lauren Hunter. Very cool. So I guess how can the private sector collaborate more with government or vice versa? I mean, where do we need to go with the... the, That's the age-old question, right? Yeah, I think we're seeing a desire... An increased desire. So there's a few things. This is a really good question because I've lived in both. Um, And I can tell you that there's some blame to go around for both and there's opportunities to go around in both sectors. But um, I think you're starting to see the the private sector really looking to the public sector for leadership on key issues. Mm -hmm. Data governance, AI regulations. Uh, you know, you had uh, someone uh, like uh, the CEO of Element AI going to South by Southwest last week or a few weeks ago saying, we want regulations in this space. So we're not necessarily used to regulating things at the cutting, cutting edge yeah. all the time in the government. And that's not just government of Canada, it's everywhere around the world. And this thing is moving so quickly. Um, so I think you're starting to see a mandate. The, the companies that are responsible in how they want to serve citizens or clients are having the right discussions with government. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very uh, optimistic at the level of response. For example, in the AI space, when we had our AI day, we asked uh, the companies to sign up to a commitment that they would not do any public sector contracts in the government of Canada if the department had not filled the algorithmic impact assessment out. Yeah. So don't sign, don't, do not continue the work if they have not done the AIA. And uh, we, we just sent out the email this week and we've got like a 25% response rate in less than three days. Yeah. Uh, from those 74 vendors. So I think that's that's an example of, yeah, we want to, we want to, we have to do this right. Yeah. I think the Cambridge Analytica thing has shown, uh, you know, some very interesting times are ahead of us. So if we don't, Major implications. Yeah, if we don't have this conversation openly, then we're not, I think there's an opportunity for Canada to lead in a lot of this stuff, basically. Mm-hmm. And procurement is obviously changing. I'm seeing a trend where the government of Canada is opening up a little bit more flexible with small businesses and new businesses coming in and their procurement vehicles. I just think that, I just think that that is an evolution towards more problem and challenge-based procurement approaches as opposed to dictating a solution. Mm. Um, I would like to think, and I can tell you that when I was at OpenText, um, our bid team and our sales team, uh, which I was a part of for a period of time, would look at Government of Canada RFPs and say, this one isn't for us, it's for this company. This one isn't for us, it's for that company. Oh, this one is written for us. So I, I'm not sure I could say that it's fully transparent all the time. So we have to move to a space where if we're actively funding people through ISED and other government departments to be smarter than us in a space like AI, mm-hmm. why would we prescribe a solution? We should talk about our problems and get 
these companies to come in and tell us how they could help, we may end up with five different solutions and we need to pick the best one as opposed to prescribing something. Yeah. And that changes the dynamics and that lets in more SMEs and you don't have to have a massive bid team to answer this because you don't, you're not answering a 250 page RFP, you're answering a 10 page problem statement. Yeah. Uh, but that's gonna have some give and take. Um, you know, uh, government acts this way for procurement because of its historical relationship with vendors and vendors act a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, and so now I think it's time for sort of both sides to come together a bit more. And I think we're starting to see that both in procurement and some regulation conversations. Again, it's super fun times to be in this space. That's really interesting. You know, I'm often seeing RFPs that are way down to the, uh, uh, the requirements when, you know, obviously you have to go back and think about the user, but you assume the government client already knows about the user. And we're actually buying for the first time ever through our Phoenix Next Generation team software as a service where we are asking the vendors to provide us a working environment from the first gate that we add requirements to, add user testing to, so it's not a paper process. Mm -hmm. They're showing us in their environments, they've stood up environments where they're showing us how they're evolving based on the process over the last four months. It's actually quite fascinating. Very cool. Another government type question, then we'll move to IoT and and slowly wrap up here. I know you got to go. Um, what are you seeing internationally with other governments that are inspiring you or some cool things that you're seeing around the world? Yeah, I think before I answer that question, the disclaimer would be that we often say that countries like Estonia, because I'm going to talk about them, or Denmark are, are too small to compare them to Canada. In a lot of ways they are, but in a lot of ways what we're seeing internationally is the smaller countries are, are winning, so to speak, the digital race. Yeah. So a country like Estonia changes its laws and regulations quickly. A country like Denmark does the same Israel, South Korea, others are just changing their regulatory framework quicker, their laws quicker, their policies quicker. So it has nothing to do with the tech. So for example, in Canada, we've had General Motors uh, run its autonomous vehicle development out of Markham for years. Yeah. And Canada was never able to, up until recently, change some of its municipal regulations to, a, to permit testing of some of these vehicles. Phoenix, Arizona has been in the autonomous testing game for the last five to seven years. Mm-hmm. Right, They're five to seven years ahead of us. So they didn't need to produce the vehicles, they just needed to change their framework to enable it. And that's where I think um, we're seeing the countries that are doing the best globally are doing this faster. Because uh, there is a time to market conversation, nationally speaking, mm-hmm. um, and the smaller countries are learning to do it faster. So Malta, for example, changed all of its regulations in six months, all of them, that impacted cryptocurrency investment and they're now one of the top destinations for cryptocurrency investments in the world. There was no reason that other countries couldn't have done that. It's just Malta decided to do that right away. Um, So what you're seeing for countries like Estonia is they moved into legislation, a tell us once approach where the government only collects citizen data once. Um, and, and the, for all services. For all services. Yeah. And so, so, and then what people will say as an excuse, because remember sometimes I say we are full of excuses, uh, they will say that, well, you know, uh, in Canada we value privacy more. Well, the answer is Estonians have more access to their data that, and from governments than we do currently. You log into a portal, you see which department or ministries touch your data when, and if they can't produce an answer, someone's in trouble. Mm-hmm. We can't do that right now. We don't have the technical, we have the technical capacity, we don't have the necessarily the policy capacity or the legislative capacity to do that right now. So, so I mean, I think at some point we need to look at these smaller countries and learn that size and scale in the digital realm is just a server, mm-hmm. right? It's the complexity of the issues and how we tackle them that is actually the key thing. And the, so The true meaning of shared services too, right? Yeah, possibly, yeah. So IoT 613, you're speaking at our conference uh, in May 2019. You are our closing uh, speaker. Um, any idea what we can expect to hear from your presentation? 
Yeah, um, I'm most likely going to be talking about leadership culture. Uh, I suspect we're going to be talking about uh, hippos. We're going to be talking about Elsa from Frozen. We're going to be talking about Nike and Just Do It, probably a donkey story and a poem. Okay, I didn't know about that stuff, but I will be so, very excited to see that. So good luck to the gang that helps me kind of tie all these concepts together. I'll wear my Disney t-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. So what interests you from the IoT perspective? We talk a lot about AI and machine learning, but obviously IoT connecting all these devices together. Yeah, I think we have an absolute opportunity in the next decade to reimagine the service relationship that the government of Canada has with its citizens. We have imposed over the last 150-something years the government model on citizens so that citizens have to know what department they have to interact with they have to supply the information 30 times and really the only people that stand in the way of changing that are us so absolutely we need to do this in a way where we are not leaving anyone behind vulnerable populations and others but even some of the populations that we seem to think aren't digitally enabled so for example 65 years or older 80% of them are already connected to the internet and it's one of the fastest demographics in social media uptake in the country. Mm -hmm. Canada is one of the most connected countries in the world, period. So, and what we're hoping to be able to do with IoT, for example, is how would you deliver any government service on, on Amazon Alexa or Google Home yeah. or your General Motors car that talks to you or your Apple Watch? Why not deliver any government of service any government service on any platform, which could include Facebook as long as they respect our privacy regulations, yeah. right, our privacy laws. Um, so anywhere that shares common values, why could we not deliver that service on that platform? So for example, we've already started. Transport Canada uh, is going to be issuing automotive recalls through Amazon Alexa soon. Uh, CFIA, Canadian Food Inspection Agency, sorry, uh, has released some of its data and worked with Samsung to have the new digital fridge issue food recalls for you. Yeah. Right. So it's very presumptuous in a day and age that we live in with IoT to actually think that citizens need to come to us. And when people tell me, well, it's because we have lots of people coming to Service Canada counters, for example. Great. If we made the digital service better and more seamless, would they need to come? Yeah. Like, let's have the right conversation, not perpetuate sort of more industrial age approaches to service design in the day and age that we live in, considering all the massive investments we just talked about in, in AI and how our values are really primed for leading a world in, in sort of automated discussions while Canadian values need to be at the forefront. Of, like we're so well positioned that I think the IoT approach to service delivery isn't well understood enough uh, in the public sector in Canada at this point. It's early days. You talk about sort of communicating out messages to Canadians, whether it's recalls or, you know, CFIA food recalls. Um, but there's also interacting to the government as a citizen, right? Do you envision there will be a time where there'll be sensors or NFC or, you know, counters that you can walk up that it's more automated and robotic? Or are you still doing it from home anyways? Um, you know, that's a great question. I, I, I think the truth will lie somewhere in the middle of that. Um, I wouldn't want us to over... To, to kind of not talk in the next few minutes that we have left on the privacy concern of that. I think we're seeing the possibility of a sidewalk lab Toronto kind of discussion. Um, I think, I, I just think that the privacy angles may or may not have been well constructed right out of the, as, as a beginning mm -hmm. uh, in the sidewalk lab example in Toronto. And that's just the first one, we're gonna see more. Um, so, for example, I've been to the Amazon Go store. I thought it was the coolest experience ever. When we were in Seattle, you walk in, you walk out. Very creepy that yeah. you could You're change. adding goods to your shopping cart, right? And taking some out. And we tried to break it. We really tried to break it. We, we, we swapped carts. Uh, we, we swapped products in carts. Like, we were in there for 30 minutes trying to figure out how to, 
how to bust this thing, and it didn't. Couldn't break it. But when you look up, there are thousands of cameras in that store processing your data real time, tied to your credit card. And so I'm okay trading privacy, some privacy for convenience, as long as there's good cyber protection. But I'm not sure that we've merged the cyber discussion with the privacy discussion and sort of with the citizen rights discussion well enough anywhere, globally for that matter. We've either taken one part of that sort of three-legged stool and really sort of hunkered down on it, but I'm not seeing enough discussions between the privacy community, the cyber community, and, and frankly, the service community. Yeah. I think as a country and where IoT becomes very powerful and dangerous is if we just go sort of full steam into this thing without having the real conversations that we need to have. And so Sidewalk Labs in Toronto is a byproduct of that. So. I mean, we talk about some of these corporations, Amazon, Facebook, you name it, where the government traditionally is in charge of regulations and privacy, but some of these corporations, or most of them, are multinational. So how does a government control you know, a company that's larger than it, right? Um, I think that's just a question of us having our rules, our values, and our frameworks in place better. Um, when cloud came to Canada or came to town, we weren't organized or orchestrated between Canadian public and private sector, right? Um, and so those traditional industrial age lines between sectors in a country have to blur more quickly. Mm -hmm. We have to have a better unified front. You know, we're not a small country. We're still a G7 economy. Sure, market size for an Amazon I'm sure they prefer India to Canada, yeah. right? Just because of population. That being said, we're still a G7 country, so we need to get sort of an integrated cross-sector lens ready when we're dealing with these big issues, whether it's privacy, whether it is data, whether it is a big sort of company coming in that has three times the size of you know, Canadian sort of economic growth on a yearly basis. These companies, we have to be unified in our approach. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I think some of the values we have as Canadians in this next wave of digital age in the next... 20, 30 years are actually really, really important because we are talking about values every single time. The IoT 613 audience is largely a private sector uh, you know, talent, uh, tech sector talent in the technology space. What is your advice to you know, the individual tech person in Canada as it relates to um, you know, your leadership in government? What would you say to the average? That's a good question. Um, I would say don't get too discouraged. You're seeing a lot of change. Get to know uh, where government employees are working in the open and, and engage. Um, you know, hashtag GC Digital on Twitter is pretty much where a lot of the digital conversations are going on with government. Please burst our bubble. So I don't want an echo chamber there. I, 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 we need diverse opinions. Um, so make sure you engage online and find us. Apologize in advance if I don't answer everybody's emails or whatever online. It's, the volume is quite, quite large, uh, but you need to engage, um, especially if you have the opportunity to work in GovTech in Ottawa. Uh, there is no better time. So, so find a way to engage. That's on the private sector side. And us on the government side, we have to find a way to have meaningful engagement outside of traditional consultation tables because the world is moving simply too fast for that. So, so it's actually a fun time to be on either side of this equation, but I encourage all of you to make sure you work at some point in time in GovTech because it is the biggest challenge of our time right now. Alex, I really appreciate you taking time to chat with us. I look forward to your closing keynote at IoT 613. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, man. Take care.